This is The Trip That Changed Me, a podcast about trips that transform. I'm Esme Benjamin, editor of Full-Time Travel, and every other Thursday, I'll be sitting down with entrepreneurs, writers, entertainers, and everyday adventurers to discuss a journey that shifted their mindset, ignited a new calling, expanded their heart, or ushered in a new chapter. My guest today, Jacqueline Gifford, has one of the most envy-inducing jobs you can imagine. She's the editor-in-chief of Travel and Leisure, the only monthly travel magazine in the United States. Travel has always been a huge part of Jackie's life. She spent her teenage years in Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and Philadelphia. But it's Japan, the country where she was born, that called to her most strongly in adulthood. I caught up with Jackie one rainy morning in New York City to hear what it was like to return to Japan after a 20-year hiatus. Her story says a lot about the connection between memory and place and the way both evolve as time passes. Jackie Gifford, welcome to The Trip That Changed Me. Thanks for having me. Do you go by Jackie or Jacqueline? I, I go by both. You know, my parents call me Jacqueline, which sounds so formal. So in my <laughs> in my work and, and, and in my, you know, among my friends, most people call me Jackie. Awesome. I'm excited to have you on the podcast because I think you have what most people would consider to be an absolute dream job. Thank you. It is. It is a dream job. <laughs> Maybe you could start by kind of talking a bit about your career history and how you came to be editor-in-chief of Travel and Asia. Sure. So I graduated college in 2002. I went to Princeton and I majored in English and I specialized in medieval studies. So that was not a good preparation for what I do now, but I, I will say I'm a voracious reader. I love to read the newspaper every day, books constantly, and I think that prepared me for my career in magazines. So I started actually at Vanity Fair two weeks after I graduated from college as an assistant. And I learned all the inner workings of a magazine, how it gets put together, the fact-checking process, the production process, assisting one of the senior editors in terms of the writers and the travel. And it was a really good foundation for understanding the fundamentals of journalism. And I was there for several years and then moved on to different to different outlets and eventually came to Travel and Leisure in 2013. So now I've been with the brand for a little bit over six years. And what's amazing is that you know, it's a brand with um, an amazing history and legacy, and it's a small, tight-knit group of people who work there, and there's not that much change, which is interesting in terms of the media landscape today. Mm, rare. And that is rare. And so when um, our previous editor left last year, I was appointed um, just shortly after, and it's been – it is an absolute dream job, and it's a brand with, again, an amazing history and legacy, and it reaches, you know, over 6 million people in print and 28 million people across our digital platforms and social media, which is pretty amazing. It is amazing. And obviously, you were born in Japan. I was. And then you were raised in Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and Philadelphia. Yes. Philadelphia <laughs> is the outlier, although I will say my family is from there, and that's where my parents were born. Amazing. Um, do you think the fact that you kind of moved around so much as a kid ultimately led you to seeking a career in travel journalism? Absolutely. I wouldn't say the, the interesting thing about about my background is, you know, my parents were really big adventurers and they they 
you know, back you, it's really interesting now that you realize how easily accessible travel is and how, how much we're all traveling and how affordable airfare is. And really the world is quite small, but back when my parents moved abroad in the sixties, it was not that way. And travel was actually more expensive. The world was, was vast. And my mom went to, you know, for example, we moved to Japan and my mom went to China in the early eighties. It was a very different proposition than the China of today and traveling there. So I think what, what's really amazing about them and how they influenced me is that they said, look, we live in, we're living in these parts of the world right now. Let's go out and see countries that are close to us, meet new people, meet new cultures. You have the rest of your life to live in the United States. You know, every every kid wants to go back home and have that connection over summer vacations or things. And I, my mom said, no, let's stay and, and, and see unknown parts of the world to us because it's going to be that much harder to get back when you're an adult. Now, little did they know I would end up in travel journalism, but, but they were right. And it is still, it is, you know, it is a challenge. And even though the world seems smaller today, you still got to get on a plane take time off from from your job um, for for most people for me travel and work it's a bit of a blend but um, but they really influenced my outlook on on other cultures on society on how to be a better global citizen what brought your family to Japan in the first place so my father was working there and he um, he he was working for mobile and he started working for mobile, I guess, when he was young, he was 21, 22. And then he worked around the world with them and, and lived in France and California and Texas and then was Pennsylvania and then was transferred to Tokyo in 1980. And so they moved there when my mom was pregnant. They were supposed to move to New Zealand and last minute it got shifted to Tokyo. And you said you weren't actually born in Tokyo City. I was not actually born in Tokyo City. So I was born in Yokohama, which is um, another major city in Japan, not too far from Tokyo. And it was because at the time, the what, there was one of, you know, there, there, there are many hospitals there. And But in terms of doctors who spoke English, my parents, unfortunately, did not speak Japanese. There wasn't um, there wasn't a doctor at the time in Tokyo. And the, the only doctor was in Yokohama. So we I was actually born there. And in the middle of a typhoon, so apparently it was really stormy outside and water was blowing in and my mom was freaking out. Um, but then she, so she stayed there for a little bit and then they moved back to Tokyo shortly after. And how did it feel as a young girl moving from Japan to the Middle East? Uh, that was tough. It was tough. Um, I'm not going to lie. Uh, moving to Qatar at 14 years old was not easy. We moved at a time, you know, Doha has grown into a very cosmopolitan city. It's, um, you know, more... Um, built up, frankly. There's more to do there now. When I moved, it was still, it was, you know, it was still, it was still fairly, um, not, I don't want to ever say closed off. It was just, it was in its infancy in terms of a, in terms of a global city. I mean, if you think of Doha now and the fact that, you know, you've got the Museum of the Islamic Arts and, um, you know, the World Cup coming and all these major events, I mean, that was just not even fathomable back then. It was, it was quite small. So, it was not easy. My school was really small. I went from a fairly large, not large, but like, you know, a, a, a school with, you know, 120 kids in my class to a school with 25 kids in my class. Um, it wasn't easy, but but I grew to like it and appreciate it. And I imagine learning how to acclimate to so many different cultures at such a young age has kind of helped you to naturally 
immerse while you're traveling, whether it's for fun or for work? Sure. I think the best, I mean, I also went to school abroad too. I went to the American school in Japan and the American school in Qatar. And I think, you know, when you're in classrooms with other kids from all over the world, you know, people, people move to Doha and Tokyo for their parents move there for all sorts of business. And then of course you were going to school with, um, with native Japanese and Qataris. So I think, it was, uh, you know, you just had to talk to everybody. And I think that that really just made me a more open person, a more curious person. And and I, that's the kind of values I believe that our readers hold and hold dear. And and I'm trying to impart them to my son, who's four. And, and I think that living in New York certainly is, is a great place to be. Are you multilingual? So I actually, this is the sad thing. I took French and I can, my French is passable, but, um, and I also took Russian in college. When we moved around so much, I wanted to take one language for consistency because I, when we were living in Tokyo, I knew the second time I should say, because we lived there twice, I knew that we would probably move in about a year and a half and we were moving to the Middle East where Japanese probably wouldn't have been offered. You know, now I guess I, you know, in some ways you can, with all the ways kids are learning, it would, it's a different proposition. But back then I wanted to, to have one language. So I took French. And growing up in Japan, what were your kind of early memories that stayed with you over the years? Sure. I remember I remember living in an apartment in a skyscraper. I remember looking out of the windows of the building. I remember uh, the vastness of the city. I remember I was actually on a, a children's program um, with like the equivalent of Sesame Street over there. And I remember some of the characters I was on as like a little guest star. And I remember some of the characters and being on set. And then, of course, my parents taped it, you know, in a VHS back then. <laughs> no one has. I don't know where that is, but um, it's probably in their basement. And then and then watching it. So that influenced my memory because I watched it later on. Those are some of the early memories. And we left when I was about two and a half. My mom swears that I was speaking some Japanese. I probably picked it up from TV and talking to people and then promptly forgot it when we moved to Saudi Arabia. And so you hadn't been back to Japan for 20 years. And then in 2015, you fall pregnant and you think, okay, this is the moment to return. Mm -hmm. Why did that feel like the perfect time to go back? Well, it's a real, that's a really interesting question. So I, I, my husband and I were married in 2008 and he's an avid traveler as well. And Japan had always been on our list. And for various reasons, we hadn't gotten back there. And then I became pregnant and we looked at each other and said, you know, I think now is the time to go because we, I wanted to reconnect with my own childhood. He had never been and now that I have a four-year-old, I realize certain trips are easier to do with kids than others. I actually think Japan now would be okay with our son, but as a two-year-old, maybe not so much because of the time the time change and all that. So we said, you know what, now's the, the moment, seize the day, let's do this trip. And it turned out to be really transformative for me. Yeah, Japan is like one of my dream places to go, but it's such a, a long flight and it's it is. hard to make that trip when you only have a certain amount of vacation days like a lot of Americans that do. That is true. All um, those reasons. Yeah. So um, let's talk logistics. When we were setting up your itinerary, mm -hmm. how did you kind of structure your dream trip? So I think the best trips really combine a bit. There's structure, but there's also room for downtime. Mm -hmm. And I think I knew since I was pregnant, it was kind of a nice in a way. It was like, I'm going to take the liberty to go easy on myself and not stress so much about the logistics. We decided to do Tokyo and Kyoto, which is a, tri a trip that most Americans do traditionally for first time visitors and, and many people and, you know, of all nationalities do as a first time visitor to Japan. So what we did we we spent we decided okay we'll spend about 5 days in the city we love cities 
we're you know going to stay at a great hotel and just explore different neighborhoods. And we booked different restaurant reservations in advance because we wanted to know where we were going to go for dinner. But other than that, we just said the days are open. And then we spent three days in Kyoto. And I think and you know, taking the train in Japan is such a unique experience because of the the ritual behind it. Also, the the fact that it's the trains are always on time. I mean, if it's if it's not, if it's not on time, that is a rarity. And how efficient and clean and just sort of the the mechanics of take of train travel there are quite fascinating. Um, and so we knew that we would be taking the train to Kyoto. Uh, you go there to sort of immerse yourself in the old culture and the old history of Japan. And then we built in another day on the back end to rest in Tokyo before the flight home. And was there one particular discovery, like an activity or an experience that kind of stood out to you? It sounds kind of cliche, but I think I had actually never gone to the top of Tokyo Tower, which even having lived there twice, and I wouldn't have remembered it if when I went as a baby, but I didn't, I don't remember going as, as a teenager. And I looked at my husband and I said, you know, we should go to the top and, and kind of see to really get a bird's eye view of, of Tokyo and understand how vast it is. You know, most people don't really, especially in America where I guess the only example I could give is L.A., but that's a totally different kind of city. You know, most cities are quite compact here. And when you understand how vast Tokyo is, the neighborhood stretch, um, quite. I mean, I can't even explain how big it is. And so it could take you almost an hour to get from one to the other in terms of um, in time. So when you're standing at the top and you get this bird's eye view of the city and you realize how big it is and how, how interesting the architecture is, I thought that that was that was quite impressive and my husband Rob was impressed too. And you told our producers that the most significant part of the trip for you was taking your husband back to your old apartment. Yes, that was really fun. I so we lived in a neighborhood called the first, the second time we lived there it was when I was a teenager called Shirogane. So it's a not it's a neighborhood that's not super well known to to people who who are you know visiting because it's more residential. Mm-hmm. You know, Japan has a lot of beautiful and, and Tokyo in particular has beautiful green spaces and parks and this area is known for it. And the the apartment building, you know, again, I when we lived there, you would have your address on a card. You would always hand it to the taxi driver to get a lot of people do that if they don't speak the language. You would hand a card so the taxi driver would know how to get back to your place. And I, I, I saved a lot of those cards for many years, and I couldn't find them before the trip. So I was really bummed about that because I wanted, I was obsessed with finding our old apartment building. So I actually went to the hotel concierge. I remembered the name of it and they helped us look it up and we found it and we took a taxi there and the building was still there. It was just, it's a small little low rise building, only three floors, but um, it's there. And it was actually really cool. I remember when I was growing up, there was a woman who lived in her building that had a hot pink Porsche. (laughs) And so they would always, she would always park it outside of the building. And it was, it was, that the Porsche was long gone, but um, but it was just it was fun to walk around the neighborhood and kind of get lost and and just be immersed in um, sort of that trip down memory lane. Yeah, totally. It's funny because I think when we recall certain memories, they're always very much rooted in place, and it almost seems to some degree like place is essential in the retaining of certain memories. Yes. But was there anything that we also know that memory is pretty fallible. It's fallible. <laughs> yeah. Of course it is. Exactly. Um, so what things about Japan seemed true to your memories mm. and what were completely different? Well, I think the uh, the subway and the, you know, the train system was exactly as I remembered it. The colors, you know, we the Yamanote line had this lime green branding that's still there. Um, uh, 
the cleanliness of of that. I'm I'm fascinated by how if you know when you think of a city as vast as Tokyo, how um, efficient it all has to run to keep people mm. going to work on time, and and that was exactly as it was. The vending machines were the same. You know, you can buy anything in a vending machine in Japan. <laughs> weird things <laughs> from beer to cigarettes to whatever. <laughs> it's so weird. Um, you know, there's you see them everywhere. They're on every, and that was fascinating too because you know all vending machines with cigarettes in the United States are basically gone, mm-hmm. um, but they're still there. Um, less so than it was in the '90s. Um, yeah, I mean that that the streets look looked the same to me. Um, the the sheer number of people. I guess I I didn't remember that. Like when you're walking down the street and sort of when you do the traditional Shibuya crossing and you realize how many people live in Tokyo, I'd forgotten that that side of things. You know, the other the other cool the other cool thing was just, you know, um trying all the food. And you know, I think when you live in the United States, everyone people have a deep appreciation for Japanese food and and but I think they think of it as like really two things, you know, it's like sushi and teppanyaki and that's just like the that's like a sliver of the kind of food that you can get there and so that was fun I wonder what sort of things you're absorbing as a kid like I our memories with when it goes back to childhood are so shaped by not just kind of our sensitivities and our you know naivete but also our literal stature like when I was a kid I remember there was this hill in the park nearby where I grew up and I remember it being this almost mountain, like a mm. huge hill. And I remember racing down it and feeling like I was going so fast. I was going to trip over my feet. And then you get there and again, and the hill's like, you it's know, tiny. It's, it's tiny. like barely a yeah. ripple in the landscape. You know? <laughs> yeah, I guess I, hmm, that's a really good question. I don't remember I, it, it all, the, the size and scale of it seemed about the same. Although I will say like, now that I'm more accustomed to traveling to major cities, you know, I, I always, I mean, Tokyo has some pr- pretty impressive skyscrapers, but I now live in New York and I've now traveled to other other cities around the world where the, you know, the um, Dubai, for example, or Kuala Lumpur or, um, or even, you know, Hong Kong, where you see these vast skyscrapers and the scale is just, you know, it's, it's tremendous. So that side of things, I, I think I was not underwhelmed, but I was like, oh, yeah, this is just a normal city where you, you're used to huge buildings. Um, you know, the the compactness and how much, you know, in terms of like they, they cram into one sheer block in Tokyo, that 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 I had forgotten. Um, and it's similar to New York, I think, in that way. Everyone living. Yeah, every, totally. And it's and 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 also the size of 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 dwellings and, and the sort of the compact living, which is. Which is something that New Yorkers are, are in particular used to. You know, you get by with a little amount of space. <laughs> so true. Um, it must have felt like a nice full circle moment to revisit the place that you were born just before the birth, birth it, of your first child. It was. Um, did it make you reflect on your upbringing and the way you hoped to parent? It did. I think it, it reaffirmed for me all the reasons that I travel and and why my husband and I travel together. And, and we've kind of, you know, we've really said... We like we'd like to raise our son with those values of of um, exploration, curiosity, empath- empathy, understanding. Um, you know, the world is vast, and and you're just a p- tiny, small player in it. So, I think it reaffirmed. You know, it took flying far away to sort of give me that a renewed perspective, um, and also realize how fortunate we are um, to be able to do to do that and to to give that kind of gift to our child. But I also think. Um, 
you know, it was just, it was a nice, it was just great. It was great to, to, to go to a place that felt entirely foreign. Um, that's why a lot of people love Japan because you're mm-hmm. in a, in a world that does feel very, very different like from a pleasant, a, culture shock. a pleasant culture. It is a pleasant culture shock. And I had forgotten that even though having lived there, but it was so long ago, I had forgotten that and then traveled the world and visited many other places in between. But, you know, that's that's part of the the beauty of, of travel, I think, is when you can really just feel lost for a little bit in a good way. In a good way. You must travel all the time for work. I do. All the time. <laughs> How do you balance parenting with taking so many Ooh, trips? That's a really good question. And I get this question a lot. And the 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 really the the honest answer is, you know, people there's a lot of discussion about having it all balance particularly for women. And I don't think you actually can have it all. And I I think the balance to me is uh, the balance is really a personal thing and it's different for every, it's different for everybody. So I, I know for me, I, I wouldn't be able to do it without a support system. My husband, my parents, um, we have a wonderful caregiver for our son, his teachers, you know, there's a whole mm. network of people. So it really takes a village to sort of raise a child and also continue your own, you know, personal growth and and continue to develop as like a an employee, an employer and all that. So I, I do it. No, I do it all. I don't do I can't I, I, I don't want to ever lie and say that <laughs> there's that you that you can possibly do it all because I think it's a bit of a myth. But um, but I think the, the, the key for me is is leaning into people when I know that I need help and then also taking a step back when I feel like I'm I'm being pushed too far. That's it. Do you get to bring your son on trips? I do. I don't I don't certain trips I don't bring him on because it's not really I'm working a lot and it's not really fair to him. It's not fair to me and he'd be much happier at home. But but sure, I we've you know, I brought him to Mexico with me. Um, I went to Italy this summer with him and he loved it and he, you know, talked about it. I've, I caught him talking to people about it at like a little party we were at. And, you know, it's amazing what what kids remember. We were in Bermuda last year. We walked into a store and he picked up a tie that he wanted. He's obsessed with ties. And we told him he couldn't have it. And then we went to Bermuda again this year and we were walking down that street and he said, I want my tie. One year later, he remembered the street where the shop was and we weren't even near the shop we were just on that same street so it's it's funny what they remember and you don't you sort of think eh. a lot of people I that's the other thing I will say a lot of people say to me oh I'm not going to bother to bring my kid they're not going to remember it and I don't think that's a fair thing to say because they do remember and it just it's even if it's just a snippet of it, it's shape, you know, that they remember 40 years on, that's fine. It's shaping them along the way. And if you just leave them at home and sort of discount the fact that they can have a good time, I think you're cheating yourself and them at the same time. And like all of us, I think you're more likely to remember a trip, you know, because it's outside yeah, of your everyday of routine and what you're seeing from course. day to day. Of course. Oh, I love that he wears ties. Oh, that my God. Guy. How it's cute. like a, he thinks he's going to work every day. Right? So like, eh. Know about that? <laughs> he's he's, he's, a, he's really into costumes and dress up as a lot of kids are, you know. But he is he he's obsessed with bow ties and ties. So there you have it. Yeah, I was thinking. I was wondering if you brought him along to trips because I think a lot of people don't realize about press trips that like it's quite hard work. It's it fun, of course, it and it's a privilege to be there. Yeah, but you know, often you'll have a really early start and you'll be back to back activities or appointments, yeah. or meetings, and interviews all day long. So. Yeah. 
Yeah, that makes it's sense. It's funny, too. I think, you know, the other thing to keep in mind, and I say this to people because I get asked a lot about traveling with children, you know, there are some cultures that are naturally very warm to children and accepting of children. Like Italy, for example, there is no better place to take kids. They, the Italians are, they they bring their children to meals there's a, they're a little bit loosey goosey about you know bedtime and stuff like that, which I you know is it you know I don't I don't I don't want him to miss out on dinners with us and obviously he goes to bed early but you know we let him stay up a little bit late it was summer and um, I actually think in in some ways America is a little bit more restrictive about family travel than other places and um, they're just now we're just now sort of getting behind or getting behind you know. Um, building infrastructure for families at airports and, you know, with, um, you know, child-friendly changing stations and bathrooms that are clean and nursing stations for young mothers. It's, it's you know, in Europe um, and even in Japan, that's a little bit more permissive. Um, I was, that's, that was one thing I was pregnant, right? I go into a public restroom in Tokyo and I go into the stall and I see this harness on the door and I go this is the most ingenious thing I've ever seen so they have realized that you know when you're a young mother and you're by yourself and you have to go to the bathroom (laughs) you have to put your kids someplace so you put the baby in the the little heart it's like a little sling oh that's I was like that of course I'm like hello but you know there's nothing like that here and this is just in a regular bathroom they're but they're they're equipped for you know mom baby friendly um you know that's for stuff it's it's kind of amazing so i you know i think when you when you start to, and i try to educate people about this too it's like you know when you're traveling with kids there's stuff that's going to happen you know they're going to spill stuff on you they're you know you're going to be traveling with all this gear and some places are easier to navigate than others it's wonderful that you're creating all of these memories with him in different places yeah um yeah Will you take a trip to Japan together at some point? I think we will. I, I'm hoping um, to go in the next couple years. I think I think he'll be ready for it. Um, we're actually going with Bobby to India over the holidays, which is quite an aggressive like trip, I think, because yeah. it's a long flight. However, um, the you know, some of the more the experiences we're doing are more resort centric there. So they've got pools and and other and, you know, different things to do. And um, India is another place that's very child friendly, actually. So I'm I'm going to see how this goes and then think about doing Japan, uh, you know, and I think I think I we would spend some time in Tokyo, but there are some other places I'd like to go with him, too. What have been some of your favorite press trips that you've taken? Oh, my gosh. Uh, That's such a hard question. You know, my husband and I went to Morocco in 2014 together, and Morocco had been on my list for a long time, and it really didn't disappoint um, because of the history of, you know, Marrakesh and the Medina and some of the most amazing hotels are there. And then we went out into the desert and stayed at a restored kasbah called Dar Ahlam, which is it's owned by a man who's known for for kind of creating these theatrical experiences for his guests. So every night you have dinner in a different place and they do a surprise sort of surprise and delight thing. And, you know, whether it's under a tent wow. in the garden or we had a lunch one day among the sand dunes. And I thought that was pretty special. Japan is one. Ireland is amazing. Is an amazing place that we love and we go to often. Anguilla in the Caribbean. You know, we go, I mean, I grew up going to Hawaii, too, because it was close to both Japan and the United States, the midway point. Um, so we spent a lot of time in Kauai, and I 
my husband and I have been there twice together. We haven't been in a long time, but I think Hawaii is a pretty special place to go. Um, yeah, there's just, I mean, God, I could, I could go on and on. There's, there's no, there's no place that's ever disappointed me. Let me put it that way. And I'd also love to hear more about what you're working on currently. Sure. So we are, gosh, it's like, you know, it's, there's always something <laughs> we're, so we're actually the only monthly travel mag, travel and leisure is the only monthly travel magazine in yeah. the United States. I didn't is, realize that. Yeah. It is not something that most people realize, but, um, but we are. And so with that, comes the need to create a lot of content. And we are constantly um, looking for new story ideas. So right now we're about to close our December issue, which is, you know, it's a wrap for 2019. And we're anointing a new destination of the year um, for 2020. And then we're also, you know, just I'm I'm constantly looking at ways to, to there's no look, there's no new destinations anymore, right? right? Mm-hmm. I mean, what's it's, it's how do you continue to advance narratives and whether that's through, you know, when a new hotel opens up that's really significant, that's important. Um, you know, places where food culture has evolved. Like, for example, I just was in Philadelphia this past weekend and um, we stayed at the Four Seasons, which is, you know, brand new for Philadelphia. And it's it's really changing the hotel game down there. And the food scene I've even noticed, my husband has noticed over the past few years has really come on strong. And there's some incredible restaurants there that rival anything in the country. So I think how do you tell those types of stories and 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 you know encourage people to get out and see the world and that's the job of our editors who are constantly meeting with writers meeting with people in the tourism business traveling themselves and then you know for me then my job I think is to really make sure that we have the right mix of places it shouldn't be all one topic it shouldn't be all one price I want to make sure that we're um, giving a diverse range of experiences through through our editorial. So how do you stay tapped into the Excuse destinations me. that are, you know, up and coming? Is it just oh. through? I think it's hard. I mean, that's, I think we try, I mean, first of all, we, we meet with writers. We get pitches all the time. We meet with representatives in the business. Um, it's our own findings. It's like sometimes even in New York, you could discover, hey, this new neighborhood seems to be on the rise. There's something here. And then you go and experience it. So what is the one thing that you think every person should experience in their lifetime? Oh, my gosh. The one thing that everybody should experience in their lifetime, I think. Actually, I think this is a funny answer. I think they should experience putting down their phone. And I say this knowing how addicted I am to it, but I think they should experience putting down their phone and truly being on vacation. I think people really need to to disconnect a little bit. That was actually another question I was going to ask you is it's really interesting to me how Instagram has changed the way that we plan. Absolutely. The way that we discover. Does that play a big role in how you come across new destinations? Or it does. I mean, I think, yeah, it does. And I, I go back and forth too with um, how much I post, what I should post, what the, I mean, there's no rules, right? It's an, it's an open, um, line of communication, but how much of, how much do I want to be influenced by other people and just sort of, there's a bit of a following the herd mentality when it comes to Instagram or how much do I I want to just say, I'm, I'm disconnecting and I'm just going to figure this out on my own. I was in Venice recently and it's really funny. I didn't realize 
I had an old school printed map and I left it in my hotel room. I was trying to find this one restaurant. You know, Google Maps there is kind of not, not great <laughs> because there's so many little alleys and bridges that are just so, they're just not marked. And we got totally lost and it was annoying and I was frustrated. But at the end of the day, we found our way back and ended up going to a different place for dinner. And the experience was fine. But it was actually kind of liberating to get lost for a little bit and be like, oh, my God, wow, like I can't. My phone's not helping me. I, I'm, I, I really, I don't know where to go. And, and you remember just like 10 years ago, that's what we had to do. And you had to build in time to get to a place if you weren't going to, if before cell phones, if you made an appointment, you had to keep it. I don't know. There's something kind of nice about, about that. There's something nice about the accessibility and the communication that we have, the instant communication that we have these days, but also like, you know. I don't know, like, I, maybe you should just make a plan and stick to it <laughs> instead of canceling on someone five minutes before you're about to Agreed. see them. I remember I went, I did a round the world trip in 2004. So mm. this was the era when I don't think. No, so, no, no, no. iPhones weren't around. Yeah, yeah, iPhones went around. And then I think it was like internet cafes. Oh, completely. <laughs> so there was no Wi Fi really. Yeah. Hotmail <laughs> account login from a, t- a cafe right. in Bangkok or whatnot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it was a lot more, you know, speaking to other travelers and kind of coming across recommendations that way, or maybe like getting a big fat guidebook and thumbing totally. through and finding things. You totally. Know? I mean, I think that's that's a trend I'm seeing in the in the industry right now, right? We're just overwhelmed with information. And so you have to cut through the clutter somehow. And I think that's what people come to travel and leisure to really help them curate and inform a trip. But also I I really think people should trust their own instincts. And if you're in a place and you're walking past a cafe and it looks mildly interesting. I don't think you need to tell to consult TripAdvisor to see Check if Yelp. it's like really <laughs> fine. You know, right, if it exactly. looks the menu looks good and you need to get a sandwich, sit down. Like, I think there's a there's a level of people are really insecure about their decisions. And I don't know if they really need to be. Agreed. And then the second question I wanted to ask mm. you is one I think you're the perfect person to answer, given that you travel so much. Um, what's the one thing you never, ever travel without? Oh, my gosh. <clears throat> well, there are many things. Um, but I... <laughs> Um, I'm going to say, actually, the one thing I never travel without is red lipstick, because I think that when you, that's just my own personal choice. Like I'm on, I'm, I'm on planes constantly. And sometimes you look, your eyes are just so, they're in bad shape. (laughs) And so I have this one red lipstick from Chanel and I put it on and I feel really glamorous, um, even if I don't really look that glamorous and it's good for meetings it's good for brightening the face that's kind of my go-to and when you're living out of a suitcase and you only have a certain amount of outfits that you can change into totally. it adds a little something yeah it's a little something nice yeah. and you know I love the packaging because it's like a little black tube with the gold band and yeah awesome Jackie, thank you so much for sharing your story. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you. I think uh, the relationship between childhood memory and place and the nostalgia that goes along with that is something that we can all really relate to. I agree. Thank you. Thanks. You can keep up with all of Jackie's adventures on Instagram by following at Jackie Giff. And of course, see what she's working on during her second year as editor-in-chief of Travel and Leisure by picking up the latest issue of the magazine. 
Don't know about you, but there's something about a printed mag that really feeds my wanderlust. One more thing before you go about your day. Full-Time Travel recently added an amazing travel advisor to our team, and I want to take a minute here to shout her out because booking through an advisor is such a travel hack, it's crazy more people don't know about it. Her name is Chelsea Martin. She's an affiliate of Embark and Virtuoso, and she's also a travel influencer in her own right. You can find her on Instagram at Passport to Friday. Chelsea has amazing relationships with hotels, tour operators, and locals all over the world. And not only will she sort the logistics and take all the stressful planning off your hands, she also scores insane perks at no extra cost to you. Think room upgrades, free cocktails, spa discounts, and late checkouts to name just a few. So whether you want to book an extravagant honeymoon or just want to secure the best hotel for your budget, Chelsea has you covered. Just drop her an email at chelsea at fttadvisor.com. That's chelsea at fttadvisor.com and start planning your dream trip with VIP perks today. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope you liked it. I'll be back in two weeks time to share more inspiring travel stories. And in the meantime, you can learn more about us by visiting fulltimetravel.co or following us on Instagram at full underscore time underscore travel. If you have a story you want to share on the trip that changed me, drop us a line. And please be sure to rate, review and subscribe so we can keep this adventure going.